Hi there, and welcome to Vineyard Church Delaware County's podcast. My name is Michael Hansen. I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and I am so glad that you have joined us for this week's message. I'm going to have a little bit more to say at the end, but for now, enjoy the teaching. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Really good to be with you guys. I just want to welcome you, especially if you're new or you're joining us for the first time. We're really glad that you're with us, especially those joining us online as well. Um, But then again, for those of you that have been here a long time, we're just glad you're here too. (laughs) We love you guys a lot. Well, we are, as Vicki said, we're starting a new series this morning. I'm really excited about this series already. It's been so fruitful. It is called In the Meantime, and for the next couple weeks, we are going to be looking at and diving into the letter in the New Testament of 1 Thessalonians. Who's read 1 Thessalonians in a while? Yeah, it's a great letter, and I'm excited to get to dive into it. Well, I was talking to Andrew this week, and if he's here, I don't know if he's here. Uh, I get to quote him, so, you know, sorry, Andrew. Uh, But we were talking about this series this week, and uh, he said something really profound about the title, and I I quickly jotted it down, so I'm going to quote what he said here. He said, if you think about it, the title, in the meantime, has a double meaning. It's an encouragement to this church Uh, to this church specifically, as to what to focus on in the meantime while they're waiting for Paul's return. And Paul is really just telling them here, he's saying, guys, until we meet again, like these are some things to remember, to do, not do. But as we'll read, there are also eschatological themes running through every single chapter. So it's also an encouragement to be thinking about what to do in the meantime while they wait for the return of Christ as well, and how to wait in those places well. So they're both living in the meantime while they wait for Paul's return and also for Christ's return as well. And today, what we're going to be looking at is just simply the first chapter in 1 Thessalonians. And I I think it really gives us a beautiful picture of this young church there. It gives us some great background and context for the rest of the letter. And so actually, we can read the backstory of this church in Acts 17. And I love that Luke does this. It's kind of like the minutes of the early church. And you can go back to Acts and you can look how and see how these church, churches started and were formed. And what we find is that actually in chapter 16, Paul has a dream and they call it like a night vision, but it's really just a dream from the Lord. And it's a man from Macedonia saying, come to Macedonia, we need your help. And he sees that as a sign that God is calling him to Macedonia. So he takes his guys, Silas and Timothy, and even Luke in the very beginning, and they start to journey all the way up north to to, to this region called Macedonia. And so just about um, right after Philippi, so they stop in Philippi, plant a church there, you know, get arrested, and God breaks them out of jail. It's pretty cool. And and then they move along to Thessalonica, and, and they're only there for about a month, we read in Acts 17. They're only about there for about a month and they start to form the first little community church there. People, Jews and Gentiles, a lot of pagans start coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. 
But at the same time, just like in Philippi, there's also some trouble brewing. And really what it is is the Jews that aren't following Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who kind of reject the gospel, they start getting jealous of all the attention that Paul is getting. So they rile up a mob and they start a riot and pretty much run him and Silas out of town and they have to flee for their lives. Well, Paul, being Paul, uh, type A personality, likes to have a little bit of control over things. He's super worried about this young church and leaving them so soon. I mean, think about it. They're what? They're only about a month old and he's gathered this group of, of new Christians and he's having to flee for his life. And so you can actually, as you read 1 Thessalonians, you can read into it. You can see the anxiety and the concern and the deep felt love that Paul has for this young church. And he's really concerned because he's not sure if they can do it without him. He's not sure if, he, if they can do it without him. And, and it makes me think like of the times where we've had to let loved ones go in our lives. Maybe, maybe your kid, maybe your kid to kindergarten for the very first time. Anyone remember doing that? And you're feeling like you're letting them go and, and you're not sure if they're gonna remember how to open the baggie for their lunch, if they're gonna come home totally starved. I mean, you start to think about the weirdest things when you're entrusting them and you, and you can't be there. Or maybe for you, it's you've sent your child off to college and you're thinking, oh my goodness, are they ready for the big wide world? You know, are they, are they prepared? Do they have what it takes? Um, you're wondering if they're ready and how they're going to do. I mean, you're not there, but you're really hoping that they're going to do okay. Or maybe for you, you're actually in the other position where you've been thrown into the deep end, maybe even at work. And, and you're like, I don't have a lot of leadership or mentorship, and I'm just trying to figure it out as I go. You know, And you're wondering if you have what it takes to be successful. Well, well Paul, he lands in Corinth, and he can't take it any longer. He just, it's driving him nuts. He needs to know how the church in Thessalonica is doing. So he sends Timothy, which happens to be the one guy who didn't get kicked out. So he's allowed to go back. <laughs> so he sends him back up north. And it would have taken uh, like a couple weeks, if not a couple months, for him to make the trip all the way there and all the way back. But when he returns, he comes back and he's like, Paul, great news, great news. You can sleep tonight. You can sleep well tonight because I've got great news. The Thessalonians are doing great. They're doing great. And actually, they are thriving. They're thriving. And so Paul, here he is filled with this good report from Timothy, and he writes this letter. He writes this letter, and it's the first of two letters that he ends up writing to the Thessalonians. And this letter is actually believed to be the earliest writing in the entire New Testament. So it would have been written just two decades after Jesus, around 50 AD. And if you think about it, it's actually a very different letter from all the different letters that Paul does end up writing within the New Testament. It is not overly correctional, and it's not even really overly theological. It is not an in-depth, heavy manifesto, you know, like, like Romans. <laughs> it's, it's actually a really informal, down-to-earth, kind of upbeat letter from Paul to his friends, to his friends. Throughout the letter, Paul is really just simply celebrating their faithfulness and encouraging them to keep at it and keep growing in maturity. And that's kind of the overarching uh, theme you kind of see. And, and in this 
first chapter, like I said, he starts to really recap for them and remind them about how they became Christians to begin with, how they became Christians to begin with. And and essentially what we're gonna look at today is he reminds them of four things. He reminds them how the gospel came to them. He reminds them how they received that gospel. He reminds them about how it impacted everyone else around them. And he also reminds them about how it changed them, how it changed them. And and this is what I wanna look at today because I believe that it's in this, it's in remembering our own conversion, right? Our own testimony. It's in remembering that and remembering the power of the gospel in our lives, what Jesus did for us, what he's doing for us and what he will do for us and the world, that's what is going to really sustain us here and now in the meantime. That's what's really gonna sustain us is remembering those things. So let's pray. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to be with us this morning and we'll dive into our first chapter. Well, Lord, we we wanna lift up those that are hurting this morning, we do not wanna forget those that have been affected by the hurricane down in Florida. I just have been praying for them all week and I just have a burden to pray for them this morning as well. Lord, we as a church lift them up. You say that you are close to the brokenhearted. Would you watch over them? Would you provide for them? Would you continue to protect them in the name of Jesus? And and we also, likewise, we wanna lift up Kenny as well from our community. And we ask for you just continued healing over him in the name of Jesus. Would you, in your grace, just be with us this morning? Would you guide this time? Would you just draw us closer to you this morning that we would hear you and that we would know you better? We just give you all the glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said, uh, this first chapter in 1 Thessalonians gives us a great overview of Paul's intent for writing, about the church he's writing to, and gives us insight about how they're really doing. And so, and that's my little girl right there. I know that cry. Uh, Let's open up to 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10. So it says right away, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for you, all of you, and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith and your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message of the, in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols, to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath." 
This is good stuff. Well, it is customary back then, and you may know this, but it's customary back then to start your letter with who the letter is from first. So the letter, obviously, it's from Paul, the apostle, Silas, his missionary partner, and Timothy, Paul's protege. And after identifying who the letter's from, he records who the letter is for, which is the church in Thessalonica. But before we go on any farther, I want to look at that city, Thessalonica. I want to look at that city for just a moment. I have a map even to kind of give you an idea of where it's located. Um, It's still a city today. It's one of the largest cities. Because it starts to really frame our understanding of these people and how important is that as we dive into this letter Well, the city of Thessalonica is nestled within a larger province called Macedonia, which was part of Greece. And I want you to just imagine for for a moment what it would have been like to live there, to be a a Thessalonian. Um, it It was a beautiful city. It had a warm and temperate climate, much like, no, not at all like here, um, <laughs> and a thriving trade center because it was because of its location. And it was also a free city, a free, at least on paper, meaning that it was tax-exempt, it was independently governed, and they could mint their own money. Uh, Rome let them do this, but all, all of it was kind of contingent on the fact that they maintained alliance or allegiance to the Roman Empire. So they didn't have any, there was no Roman occupation in their city, They were thriving, their economy was thriving, and they had this special treatment, but it also caused them to be super sensitive about anything that wasn't normal or didn't like align with the, with the Roman Empire. The city was also filled with temples everywhere you went. The city was filled with lots of gods and goddesses from Egyptian gods all the way to the Greco-Roman pantheon, Zeus and all his buddies. Uh, there was a temple even in the middle of the city, archaeologists have actually found, and the temple was to Caesar himself. And they would worship him, they would worship him like a god. And you would actually have to go there on a regular basis. And you would have to worship Caesar as your god and pledge your allegiance to him and to Rome. And really, not to do so was treason back then. So this is, this is their life. This is what it was like for them. This was their world. Yeah, sure, they had freedom and they had comfort and they had ease, but boy, like idolatry was woven into the fabric of their everyday life. It, it really, it was not like today. Think of like today, religion and politics and, you know, family and, and your sexuality. It's all in separate compartments in our lives, right? Religion's over here, politics are over here. You know, <laughs> it, we have lots of different compartments. But back then in the, ancient, in the ancient world, it was all mashed together. It was all mashed together. If you want to do business, you had to go to the temple, right? If you had to do, if you had to do anything, you didn't do anything until you first made a sacrifice and went to your temple. This is where so much of their life converged. And this is where this young church is coming from. This is where this young church is coming from. And this is kind of what is surrounding them, what's, what they're facing every day. And this is what gives, I think, such a remarkable contrast to what then Paul says next. You notice what he says about them. He says, guys, we, we mention you always in our prayers. We thank God for you. And what do they remember? They remember this young church's faith, love, and hope. 
that characterize their lives. How cool. But he, he goes a step farther and he kind of pairs it with these beautiful descriptions. And it's like, he says, they're warm and living faith. That's what he means there. And, and they're arduous and they're wearying love and, and they're active endurance inspired by hope. I mean, this is a beautiful but realistic picture of what it really means to be the church. And then he goes on to affirm that they are loved and chosen by God, which, which is very much Israel language. That is what God would say of the Israelites all the time. You are loved and chosen. And here Paul is referring to these pagans and Gentiles, these new believers as loved and chosen by God. And, and then to support this claim, he reminds them of four things. And this is what we're going to look at today. Four things about their conversion, about their conversion. This is how he starts out the whole letter. So first let's look at how the gospel came to them. This is the first thing he reminds them of, how the gospel came to them. Why is this important? He says, for we know brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. First he said, but not simply with words. Now, it doesn't mean that the gospel doesn't come without words. There's a lot of sayings out there that you know, wor use words if necessary when you're preaching the gospel, but really the gospel is first and foremost a message. It's a message, there's words, <laughs> not its core. It is a verbal proclamation of what Jesus has done and how an individual gets right with God. That's, that's what it is at its core. And it's meant to be a message that is shared with people, verbally shared with people. And if I were to sum up, or if we were to sum up what the gospel is in just you know, a core message, it's kind of hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to, to take all that you know about the gospel and put it into like a nice little nugget that you can share with other people. And throughout the ages, people have tried to do that, right? There's lots of organizations out there that have tried to give people like a one sentence summary of the gospel so that you can share it with your neighbor. And, and that's great, but a lot of times it kind of misses so much of what the gospel really is when we condense it too short. So I'm gonna give you the best one I could find, okay? We got this quote up here and it's from Simon Gaither Cole and it's his summation of the gospel. And I think it does a really good job in the fewest amount of words surmising the gospel message. And I think it's worth, it's just worth mentioning before we dive into more of what the gospel is. So he says, Paul's good news was, First, that Jesus was the promised messianic king and son of God come to earth as a servant in human form. And second, by his death and resurrection, Jesus atoned for our sin and secured our justification by grace, not by works. And third, on the cross, Jesus broke the dominion of sin and evil, and at his return, he will complete what he began by the renewal of the entire material creation and the resurrection of our bodies. Amen. That's good. That's good. I, there's no way I could summarize the entire gospel in like three points, but he does a good job at it. And I think we have to start there. We have to start there. But Paul goes on to say something really incredible about the gospel. It's not just a mere message, is it? He says, 
Our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power. And do you see that little interesting verb right there? It says, our gospel came. Our gospel came. And actually in the Greek, it is a transitive verb. It's an action verb. And it means, it really means that it it moved all by itself. (laughs) It, It actually was active in and of itself. It was a force to be reckoned with. A force to be reckoned with. The gospel is also a power. It is a power. It's not just a message. It is a power. And and Paul says, not just here, but he says it in numerous places. He says in Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first the Jew and then to the Gentile. So he, notice it doesn't say he doesn't, it doesn't come with power or it results in power or it leads to power, but it is power. And when we hear the gospel, when we hear the gospel, especially for the first time, you know, not just believing it with our minds or agreeing with the statements that are made, but when we really, when the Holy Spirit is at work and we hear the gospel, it should absolutely wreck us. It should wreck us. And it does, doesn't it? When we hear the gospel for the first time, when we realize that we are so much more flawed than we ever dared believe, that we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope at the same time. See, if we allow it to, it reorients our hearts. It reorients our loves. It captivates us in a way that only the gospel can. Timothy Keller does a really good job um, summarizing this as well. He says, the gospel, if, it is a really, if it's really believed, removes neediness, the need to be constantly respected, appreciated, and well-regarded, the need to have everything in your life go well, the need to have power over others. All these great deep needs continue to control us only because the concept of the glorious God delighting in you with all his being is just that, a concept and nothing more. Our hearts don't actually believe it. So they operate in default mode. And Paul is saying, if you really want to change, you must let the gospel, what, be a power. It must be something that teaches you, trains you, disciples you, coaches you over a period of time. You must let the gospel argue with you. You must let the gospel sink down deeply into your heart until it changes your motivation, your views, and your attitudes. It is a power. It is a power. It's not just empty rhetoric. Now, Paul goes on to say, to even back this up a little further, he says, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. And what Paul is probably saying here is that along with the message of the gospel, with its power to change our lives, were these signs and wonders of the Holy Spirit. We talk about this a lot in the vineyard. We talk about the words and the works of the Spirit, both. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they would have come both preaching the gospel, but also healing the sick and casting out demons and prophesying in the spirit, maybe even raising a few people from the dead from time to time. This was totally normal for them. It was business as usual. This was how they did life. What a cool scene that must have been 
to walk around and follow them as they did life preaching, but also, also showing what the gospel really looked like in their midst. But it also said it was with deep conviction which was this inner stirring, this resonance that was happening in these people that had never heard the name of Jesus before. Something was happening to them at a soul level and the Holy Spirit was at work, not just in their midst, but in their hearts as well. This is good stuff. I mean, this is good stuff. Okay, getting excited. Then secondly, secondly, Paul reminds them of how they received it, how they received the gospel. It didn't just get proclaimed and demonstrated, but they actually received it. And and in verse six, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. First, they, they welcomed it. They were open to it. They welcomed the message right in the midst of severe suffering, especially persecution. See, when the Thessalonians turned from their idols, it would have caused a lot of problems for them. Um, From business to politics, from their community life to their family, it would have affected everything in their life. Because remember, it was all mashed together back then. So it would have affected everything. They were up against some really severe suffering. And we don't know if it was violent or not. The text actually doesn't say that. But whatever it was, it was not easy for them. It was not easy. And and I think that's why this next line is such a beautiful contrast because he says the Holy Spirit gave them what? Joy, joy, joy. And I love that juxtaposition, suffering and joy. Uh, That's that's crazy, but, but so true, right? When we start to follow Jesus, life sometimes gets harder, not easier not easier. And I know that that's a little bit of counterintuitive for us, uh, depending on our background, church background, but we have to be so careful that we don't use that false sales pitch of come to Jesus and your life's going to be awesome, right? And you've heard it. We've all heard it in different churches. Come to Jesus and your life is going to (laughs) rock. But then they leave out the part that Jesus, you know, died beaten on a cross and that he was homeless and dirt poor and ended up totally rejected by his own people. I mean, they're like, oh, well, that was just Jesus, you know, but for us, you know, (laughs) we get to just live in this glorious state forever and ever. And that's just not true, is it? And for most of the world, that is not true. We can get away with it in this wonderful country of ours. But, you know, when we went over to uh, the Japanese vineyard in Kani, Japan, Adam and I went over there um, for a mission trip, just the two of us. And we got to visit with this incredibly beautiful small church there. And this was many of, this was all of their stories. For every one of them that got baptized, and that was the key, for every one of them that got baptized, they were rejected and shunned by their families. Every single one of them. For them to be baptized and to follow Jesus was at great cost, was at great cost. But just like the Thessalonians, the crazy beautiful thing was, and I hope to visit there again because it was such a sweet community. Even though life got harder, their joy was off the charts. It was so counterintuitive. Their joy was off the charts. They were some of the most joyful, communal, serving bunch of believers I have ever met. I mean, they were it for each other. You couldn't tell whose kid was whose because everyone was just like, we're one big family. (laughs) It was beautiful to see that on display, but also to know, know what they had come from and what they'd been through. 
See, a people who can suffer and at the same time have joy, that is an incredible witness to our city, isn't it? That's incredible witness. And some of you, you're in that season right now. You are in a season of suffering. And what would it be like for us to walk that journey out with joy? What incredible witness that would be to our street, to our neighborhood, to our coffee shops, to the world, right? So then it comes as no surprise that that they had become these imitators, these imitators. And how much of us, I mean, think about about how we learn from childhood on. My two-year-old that was just crying there for a little bit, that's all she does is imitate me or or her her big sister. No, she likes to imitate her big sister. Poop, fart, you know, she just thinks it's hysterical. That's my life right now. (laughs) And, And she imitates everything she says and everything she does. This is how we learn. And I think if we're honest, you know, we think we get a little more sophisticated as adults. Like, well, that's not how I learn now, but we do. We, like, we, that's how we learn is we watch people. We imitate people. We imitate people online all the time, right? We'd like to say we don't, but we do. This is how we learn. And here we see that Thessalonians, they're doing just that. They are mimicking, they're following what Paul is doing and watching him and, and picking up on the way that he just does life. I'm sure he looked so much like Jesus. And, and really what they were doing, they were imitating Jesus, his teachings, his kingdom. I mean, they weren't just going to church like once in a blue moon and volunteering here and there. I mean, they were doing life with Paul. They were doing life with each other. That's all they had were each other. Many of them would have lost their, their jobs. Many of them would have been shunned by their families. They were living life, watching how Paul did his life and mimicking him. And this is how they learned. They were doing the long, hard, tedious, beautiful work of of submitting their lives to Jesus and the transformation that comes from that when we start to realize who we are in Christ and our image and likeness in him. It is a lifelong pursuit for sure. Well, let's look next at what Paul reminds them. And he reminds them of how the gospel impacted everyone else around them. This is cool. In seven and eight, he says, so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. They had become a model church, a model church. And the word model here in the Greek is typos. That's where we get the word type. And it basically means a type, template, or form. So this church had become the kind of church that other churches wanted to pattern themselves after. So the imitators became imitated, which is so interesting. So if you think of Athens or Philippi or Ephesus or Corinth, they would say, oh man, we want to be like the Thessalonians, whatever they got going on, we want to do that. Like, we want to be like them. They're the cool church on the street. Uh, They're the ones that everyone's trying to mimic and copy. And what's so striking here is if you do the math, if you do the math here, by the time Paul writes this letter, this church is like under a year old, a year old. And they are already like the model church on the street. Like everyone wants to be like them. How cool is that? I mean, a year before this, they're in Zeus's temple, like worshiping Zeus and here they are. And they are a model church to everyone else. It's so cool. And then it says the word rang out. And that's exaheo in Greek. And, and that's where we get the word echo. It's actually the only time it's ever, ever written or recorded in the New Testament. It's beautiful. 
And so it has to do with noise and volume. Think about like a loud noise that splits across a canyon or a valley and you, you hear it reverberating for miles and miles around. That's the idea he's trying to get at. So the gospel rang out from this church. The gospel rang out. And the next line, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Everywhere, not just in the church community, but everywhere for hundreds of miles. Everybody's talking about what happened to you how you turned from idols. I mean, this is, this is a really cool testimony that they have and how they're thriving even in the face of persecution. This is a real deal church. It's a real deal church. And so lastly, Paul reminds them, and really most importantly, how the gospel changed them from the inside out, how it changed them. And, and this is what I wanna end with today, but also emphasize. In verses nine through 10, they tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So first they turn, they turn. And, and really, if you think about it, turning is repentance, isn't it? I mean, repentance is turning. It's turning away and facing Jesus. So first thing they do is they turn away from really their entire life, the way they lived life, the idols they worshiped, they dropped them and they faced and worshiped Jesus from that moment on. I mean, this, this was huge. This was huge, like we've already said, but, but you gotta realize giving up gods in this kind of society was unheard of, like unheard, nobody did that. It's uh, the only thing I could think of, that's an example for us today, is like if we gave up the internet, I'd be like, who does that? Can you even do that? Is that possible? I think you could do it. I think you could give up the internet completely. But I mean, like, how, how are people supposed to get a hold of you? Like, how about email? How about, you know, like going to work? I mean, and you're like, no, sorry, I don't do internet. And people are like, what? You don't touch that? What? <laughs> I mean, they would be like that. It is so unheard of in our day and age. It would have been unheard of in their day and age. So just think about the magnitude of this for them the magnitude of this for them. And, and, and this is interesting. Uh, John Calvin says this, because I think it starts to bring it back to like the idols that we have today. And of course the Lord's not telling us to give up the internet, thank, thank God. Um, but, <laughs> but there are many idols in our lives, right? And John Calvin, he does a great job of surmising this. He says the human heart, our image bearing and interesting image fashioning nature is an idol factory. Our idols might not be made of stone and metal. We might not bow down and worship them, but boy, we worship them. They get a lot of our attention and time, don't they? Like the things that we have in our lives that we think we need, that we think we really need. Timothy Keller says, sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into what? Ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a really good thing, anything more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. See, we all have things in our life that we think we need to satisfy us, to protect us, to rescue us, Whatever it is, that thing is what you serve. It is your master. And the gospel shows us that either we can be slaves 
or we can have Christ. And really, those are the only two options in this life. Those are the two options. There's only one master, though, that is good, that is living, and that is true. And that's Jesus Christ. So lastly, what we see is not only did they turn, but they became people who both served and waited. They served and they waited. They were living in the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God, whether they knew it or not. This was a church fully present in the moment. This is important. They were fully present in the moment. They were working faithfully. They were laboring in love. They were imitating Paul. They were becoming more like Jesus. They were suffering and they were rejoicing. All of this is present tense stuff. They weren't escaping. They weren't hiding away from the suffering that was happening in their lives. They were engaging life then and now. They were engaging life. And and for some of us, we need to remember that that God has not called us to separate ourselves from this world. He wants to be in it, but not of it, right? In it, but not of it. And that means we need to be engaged. We need to take our work seriously. God takes our work seriously. We should too. We should take our community seriously. We should engage in the now. We should engage in the now. But this was also a church that had like one eye down here and one eye up here where they were in the present, but they were also looking to the horizon for Jesus's return. This is how they were living. This is how they were living. Anyone of you have a vacation coming up anytime soon? Oh, come on, Kathleen. Uh -uh. Um, (laughs) Uh-uh. Yes. I mean, when you have a vacation coming up, come on, it gets you out of bed in the morning. You're like, 10 more days and I'm on the beach, you know? Like you get excited, you start counting down the days till you're in the sun, till you can relax, you turn off your phone, don't have to check your emails, you know, like you cannot wait. And it gets you up in the morning, doesn't it? It, the, The idea of what will be and what will happen is energizing you right now. It's energizing you right now. I think it starts to help us. It helps us deal with the hard parts of life now because we know in just 10 days, we're gonna be at the beach, you know? We start counting down and and we get excited. And what if we were to live this way all the time? What if we were to live this way, not just pre-vacation, but all the time? Looking forward, not just to my next vacation or trip, but looking forward to the return of Jesus Christ himself, amen? Amen. I wonder what energy that would breathe into us, what, what life, what focus, what clarity, what sense of what's important and what's not, how it would clarify things and the things that we worry about would change, the things we spend our money on would change. I think, I think for us, like what it would look like, what would it look like for us to live literally waiting, waiting, I think that's an invitation for us today, for sure, to turn from the idols in our lives, to turn and to serve in the present moment and to wait for Jesus. So in closing, I wanna leave you with this, okay? I wanna leave you with this today. We cannot forget the power of the gospel. We cannot forget the power of the gospel. We cannot forget our own conversion story. When's the last time you thought about your testimony? or about the time you first met Jesus. Oh, we need to remember this because if we don't, it is so much easier for us to fall back into dry, lifeless religion that has absolutely no power at all, right? And what happens to us in that place, 
where it's just a set of beliefs that we, we believe in, but it's not something that's actually transforming our lives because we're following Jesus. What happens is we turn back to the idols. We turn back to the idols for life, right? What we think is life. And we stop serving because we don't have any energy to do that anymore. You know, like we need to just focus on me. And, and we, don't, we don't wait because all we're doing is living in the moment for the now. I mean, it changes us when we stop remembering the good news. And that's why I think spiritual disciplines are so important. Why reading the scriptures, simple things like reading your Bible and going to church and, and worshiping God and serving your community and your church. And I mean, these things constantly remind us of the truth of the gospel, giving us the power we need to live. See, God wants us to reorient our lives back on the power of the gospel, the good news, to remember what Jesus has done, to remember what he is doing and remember what he will do for us and the world when he returns. We need to live in light of those things because when we do, when we do, it will and can sustain us. It can sustain us in the meantime as we wait for his return as we wait for his return. So I think that's the promise of the Lord right there. So let's go ahead and stand. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope that what you heard has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. For more information and to contact us, go to vcdc.org. We'll bless you. Have a wonderful week.